and welcome back to the Shades of Magic Read Along. We are in week nine of ten. Oh boy, can you even see how many? It's just all post. I had to go back to the store for more post-it notes. That's what it came down to here. And I still don't think I have enough to finish this book. Wow, I just feel like we all need to take a centering breath before we begin because we left everyone in pretty dire straits. And I gotta say, this week and next week are probably gonna feel just about that way, okay? So when we left off, the king in Red London definitely planning something desperate. We are waiting on a spell to put the whole city to sleep. Oseron has built himself a palace next to the real palace, and yet he's still not happy with the amount of magic that he has. Lila, Cal, Alucard, and Holland have boarded a ship with their crew and Jasta, another captain, to go off and find an inheritor at the floating market. Everyone is busy. Also, the idea of all those people on a ship together, I mean, I love it. They hate it. It's, it's just right for drama. Let's find out what happens next. So we, we actually open part eight, Uncharted Waters. We're going to open with Alucard Emery. He is having really terrible coffee. The coffee just gets worse on the, over the course of his quest. But having a really bad cup of coffee and watching Lila Bard. And we actually learned that he, because he can see the threads of power, the thread, oh, look at that little, it's like I wove that in for the next series. But because you can see the threads of magic, he has actually known that Lila was an Antari magician since the moment she came onto his ship. It's actually why he led her onto his ship in the first place, because he could see the very particular silver threads on the air around her. He's thinking about the fact that he's always known this. When Kel joins him, remember, Kel and Alucard, oil and water, cats and dogs in a bag. We just don't want them together. And Kel's basically like, you've known this whole time, haven't you? I can see the way you're looking at her, and I know you got that little special eye magic, and like, you knew. And Alucard's like, yeah, I knew. Um, but she didn't tell you, and I didn't have to be told. So what does that say about you? Again, Alucard's just trying to get punched, just trying to get punched every day of his life. Um, Alucard does take this opportunity, though, to tell Kel what really happened when he left Rye. And essentially, we learned that Alucard did not plan on leaving Rye, that Alucard was jumped. Um, he went home for, after a night with Rye, and his family, his father, and his older brother essentially jumped him, beat the absolute shit out of him, and shipped him away. Uh, it's quite a violent scene. It's also a scene that is explored in more detail in a short story called A Royal Affair. But essentially, Alucard tells the true story of why he left Rye, and that when he finally managed to come back to the city, he, did, he didn't realize that Rye cared as much about him as he cared about Rye, or else he never would have left again. Uh, and Kel basically is like, I really wish you'd keep this story to yourself because I just really enjoy hating you, and I still hate you, even though you told me your soft story. And Alucard's like, yeah, that's fine. It's completely mutual, don't worry. But we're starting to get a glimpse that Alucard, like, has a really good heart under there, and he was also very young and didn't handle things well. Kel leaves to go to a different part of the ship that does not have Alucard Emery on it, and Lila comes over and they have a little talk about running away, and Alucard admits that like he likes the sea, but he's kind of really tired of running away, and that maybe we get the sense that like he only ever became a seafaring person because of what happened with Ryan and his family, and he would really like to go home. Now. Meanwhile, they pass through the wreckage of another ship, and we learn about the sea serpents. And the sea serpents are not like those big-ass eels in The Princess Bride. The sea serpents is a name for uh, some pirates that like to burn the, the boats 
from the people that they like murder. <laughs> so Lila's like, oh man, poor boat. And Alucard's like, you're truly the only person I know that would be sad about the boat. She's like, well, I know whatever the people did, they probably deserved it, but the boat did not deserve it. And Alucard is like, you are so weird. Meanwhile, Kells goes down to check on Holland, who is chained in the hold. And for once, he finds Holland asleep. And we never see Holland asleep because Holland never lets his guard down. And Kel goes to wake him. And there's a moment when Kel wakes Holland where we see, like, the unbridled fear that has been trained into Holland over his years with the Dean twins when that armor is down. Um, it very quickly comes back up, but we have seen it. And Kel unchains Holland because he doesn't really see the point of having him chained. He's an Antari magician. It's really just uh, pointless. And he tells Holland their plan uh, because Holland's like, I can piece it together from everything I'm hearing people say around the ship, or you could just save me the time and energy and tell me what we're doing. And so Kel tells him the plan. And um, Kel asks about the three people that Holland killed before he became a servant to the Danes. And Holland's basically like, fuck off. But we're going to find out because Holland is letting us into his mind. And so we knew that he killed his brother who tried to kill him. We know that he killed his lover who tried to kill him. And now we're going to see the third one. So we have a flashback with Holland and Vortalis. Remember, Vortalis is the guy who comes to him and is like, I don't actually want to kill you. I want you to help me kill the shithead king. And we know that the kings and queens in White London historically are tyrants. They're all terrible people because that's the kind of person that gets to take the throne. And Vortalis has a vision for what if we broke that cycle? Like, what if you and I work together and your magic and my vision for the future, we could actually make change happen? And so he essentially convinces Holland to help him by to help him kill the king. And essentially he needs Holland's magic to do it because the king's name is Gorst. And Gorst, it's just, I picked a name. I don't know. If your name is Gorst and you're watching, I'm sorry. It's not inherently a bad name, but I just picked a name for like, what I kind of felt would be like the shithead king in white London. And um, so Gorst essentially is super paranoid and doesn't let anyone get close to him and holds up in the castle fortress, but Holland can make doors. And so using Holland's magic, they kill Gorst and Holland crowns Vortalis king. And Vortalis is like, now we're actually going to make change happen. It's not going to last very long. Okay, so we cut back to the present day and the ship and Leno standing at the stern and we hear that Josta says they need to dock. And they're like, I think we're in a hurry. And she's like, no, we have to dock for like an hour at this port. Don't worry. We kind of took off without any supplies. I need some supplies. Josta's starting to be a tiny bit sketchy. So we should all just put up like a miniature red flag in our brain. But anyway, she's like, we're going to dock. Don't worry. No one's going to notice. The place is called Rosenall. Problem is they get to this port and we actually learn that it's a private port and Rosenal and his like kind of merry band uh, is not supposed to be present at the time, but they are. And Joss is like, oh shit, you need to get the Antari magicians off this ship because we are not in the, we are not in the capital anymore. And like, they will definitely either kill those Antari or try and sell them on the black market. Like you just can't be like walking around like princes in this part of the world. Um, so she's like, get off the ship and come back in an hour. How much... How much trouble can we get up to in an hour in a private port? I'm sure nothing will go wrong. Anyway, we have a near escape, uh, but the three Antari manage to get off the ship. Lila does not like Rosanal this place. She has kind of a bad feeling. She can't shake the vibe that she's being watched. And Alucard's like, yeah, I've been here before. Alucard's with them. And Alucard's like, I've been here before. And that's just kind of the vibe of this place. And Lila's like, I don't like it. 
Like, I just keep feeling like I'm being watched. It's a bad feeling. Um, so they go into a tavern and they're killing time and they discuss the floating market. And we learn that there are some rules. First of all, in order to even board the floating market uh, and like investigate what it has. So it, it mostly specializes in forbidden objects and forbidden magic. But in order to even go and have a look around, you have to make a token offering to Maris, the, the captain. And he, and it has to be valuable in some way. And Lana's like, yeah, you really could have said this shit before we left London. Like, I only have what I have in my pockets now. And Alucard's like, seems like you problem. I'm going to go find something. You stay here. Alucard leaves. Lana's like, I'm obviously going to follow Alucard. We have this kind of, this deal where we just look out for each other. So even though he said, don't follow me, she's like, I'm going to follow. Kel's like, don't follow him. And she's like, I'm going to do what I want. So Lila follows Alucard and promptly loses him. And now Lila is alone again in Rosenal, and she still cannot shake that bad vibe. Like, people are definitely following her. And she's absolutely right. It turns out people are following her. She gets jumped by trouble. And we're going to do a way throwback for this trouble because she gets jumped. <laughs> let's, take a, let's take a moment. At the very beginning of Gathering of Shadows, we open book two with Lila floating in a little skiff in a dress tied up in the middle of the sea. And she cons her way onto a pirate ship. And then she like knocks out most of that crew, steals their shit and goes. And it's part of a bet, right? This is that crew. So that crew from book two have tracked Lila down and have jumped her. And Lila's like, okay, that's fine. I can hold my own against that. I'm a motherfucking Antari magician now. Don't worry. Okay, we'll come back to her in a second. Meanwhile, Kel and Holland are sitting alone in the tavern together, and it's really super awkward because Kel and Holland, like, they don't, they don't get along either. Really, a rule for the series, no one gets along with Kel. I don't know what that says about Kel, but Kel has very few friends and a lot of people that seem to want to punch him all the time. So Holland tells Kel that he wants to be the one to use the Inheritor on Osteron. And this is important because whichever one of them uses the Inheritor is going to lose their magic. Because the way that the Inheritor works is you don't get to like pick which part of yourself you put into this device to be transported. Like it's all of your power. And uh, Lila's not going to do it. We know that. Uh, Kel cannot do it because of Rai. And so Holland is making out like it's his choice and he's demanding it. But we also kind of get that he's doing this as a mercy for Kel. And Kel says, thank you. And Holland's like, fuck you. I'm not doing this for you. But he's got his own reasons. And with that, we cut back to, I got sad for a second, but then I realized we weren't at that scene yet. So we're okay. So with that, we cut back to a flashback of Vortalis being named the Winter King, naming, styling himself this way. And um, Holland seems happy. Like Holland and Vertalis are setting up this kingdom. They're like hopeful. And Kel arrives, child Kel, like 11, 12 year old Kel, his first job as messenger. And he arrives in white London to bring a message to Vertalis, the current ruler on the throne. And Holland takes an instant dislike to child Kel. Because child Kel's like, oh, we're like the same. Like, you and me, we both have the black eye, the mark of magic, like, we're in Tari, we're the same. And Holland's like, fuck off. Like, basically, like, shoot. Um, does not like Kel. Sees that he's, like, spoiled and basically has a lot of resentment towards this child. He's, like, 20 at the time, and Kel's, like, 10. Anyway, we come back to Lila Bard, who is fighting against a solid six men, all right, from, from this pirate ship that she robbed. And uh, she's holding her own until the moment she's not. 
and it, it tips because, you know, there's just only so many people you can fight at one time, especially if you're not at your absolute best. And we see she is in trouble. And we cut from there for a moment to Kel and Holland uh, discussing, like, what their offerings are going to be for the market. And Alan Card returns. And they're like, hey, where's Lila? And he's like, how should I know? And they're like, she left with you. And he's like, I, I don't see Lila, do you? And all three of them are like, fuck. And so the three of them are like, we got to find Lila right now. And it's a really good thing they take off because Lila is now losing. Lila is losing, but she's like, I counted six. She manages to put six of them down and she miscounted and there's a seven and he drives a knife up through her ribcage and into her heart. And we're like, ah, like what the fuck? It's Lila Bard. And like, she's had a lot of like grazing wounds, but this is like a full on, like to the hilt. And like, she goes down and she starts to black out. And the last thing she hears is someone telling her to hold on. And that voice does not belong to Kel, it belongs to Holland. Because they have split up to try and find Lila and Holland has gotten to Lila first. And Holland does a healing spell on Lila and then Kel gets there. And then Kel and Holland fight together for the very first time in this whole series against the rest of the crew of this pirate ship that show up. And they dispatch all of them and Lila's on the ground and Alucard arrives and he's like, what the fuck, Lila? And then Lila is coming slowly back to life because Holland used a healing spell. And then Holland is like very exhausted and leans against a wall. And Kel is telling Lila like, stay with me, stay with me. And this is triggering to Holland and he's gonna have a very bad memory, but we're not there yet. <sighs> because we gotta go to partner. All right, we're just gonna take a moment before we get back to all of that drama. And we're going to be with Tyrion, the head priest, back in Red London. And he's thinking about the fact that he served Maxim's father. And now he serves Maxim. And he feels very conflicted about everything that's happening and about what Maxim is choosing to do. We still don't know what that is. But he's supposed to serve the royal family. And Amira, the queen, comes and she wants to know what Maxim's doing. And Tyrion can only tell her that the king is doing what he believes is right. And... Amira is so terrified of loss. Like, this is the thing that scares her so much. And then Tyrion says, probably one of my favorite lines from the entire series. He says, love and loss are like a ship and the sea. They rise together. The more we love, the more we have to lose. But the only way to avoid loss is to avoid love. And what a sad world that would be. And with that, back to Lila Bard. Lila opens her eyes, she's alive. There are 10 bodies on the ground around her now. She's like, fuck, that sucked, but we're all alive. That will haunt me in my nightmares probably, but like, we're not gonna deal with it. The theme in the series, take the trauma, just put it inside, okay? So they head back to the ship and Lila has a small nonverbal beat with Holland. It's all thinking. She's like looking at Holland and she's thinking like, I still don't trust you. And Holland's like looking back at her like, Okay, and that's how we're going to come to, I think, one of the hardest chapters in the book. This is flashback. This is Holland and Vortalis, the king. And they're talking about, Vortalis is talking about how he kind of likes Kel. He seems like a good kid, right? It's going to be great. They're talking and they're having a nice evening at the castle, uh, planning for the future. And Vortalis is smoking 
and he starts to cough. And Holland's like, this is weird because you smoke a lot and you, he's coughing. And he starts to cough up blood. And Holland realizes too late that some kind of cursed magic is happening. And he starts to try and draw this poison out of his friend's body. And it's like shards of metal. And essentially, Fortalis dies. It has been a, it is like a curse. And right then is when the Dane twins come in. And Holland is trapped. Um, he stumbles across essentially a binding spell as he's trying to get to Fortalis. He can't escape. Holland um, is taken by the Dane twins. Athos Dane binds him and tortures him and essentially carves that soul seal into his body. And the thing that we learned about that soul seal that was on Holland that forced him to do the Dane twins bidding is that it did not force his mind. It only forced his body. And so he was constantly being essentially torn apart from the inside because he, he became a, a, a spectator in his own actions. And essentially they beat this into him by making him kill Vortalis's allies. So they, they put a, a, a person who was on Vortalis's side in front of him and they say, kill him and Holland resists. But in the end, he kills him and they make him do this again and again and again until he stops resisting, until the fight goes out of him. So super grim and also why Holland is the way he is and the way that I would, I want to sum it up. Um, one by one, Athos and Astrid paraded the remains of Ortalis's life before Holland, instructing him again and again to cut their throats. Every time he tried to fight the order, every time he failed, every time he had to look them in their eyes and see the hatred, the betrayal, the anguished confusion before he cut them down. The bodies piled, Athos watched, Astrid grinned, Holland's hand moved on its puppet string and his mind screamed until it finally lost its voice. <sighs> Holland. The person who's videoing this right now, I want you to know, Jenna, uh, had only read the first book before we started this read along. So I've basically been telling it to her as I tell it to you. And at the beginning, she's like, I don't like, what's the big deal with Holland? He's just the bad guy. And I'm like watching the emotion on her face behind the camera now. I'm like, so anyway, we come back to Lila Bard. Lila can't sleep. Lila goes and confronts Holland. They need to have this reckoning. You know, he just saved her life. She's really pissed about that. Obviously not pissed to be alive, but it had to be Holland. Um, and they have a confrontation over the number of people that they've killed. And she wants to like, obviously hold him accountable for a huge amount of blood on his hands. And he points out that she does not know how many people she's killed, that he keeps a perfect record. And all of those things live with him like scars. And Lila cannot recount how many people she's killed. So there's a little bit of a reckoning moment. At this point, Lila goes to Kel. She's in her feelings, right? She has nearly died. She is pissed off. She feels helpless. She lets someone get the better of her in a fight. We have a lot of feelings. And she goes into Kel. And Kel starts to talk. And she basically cuts him off with a kiss. She doesn't want to think. She wants to feel. And what happens after that is one of my favorite scenes that I can't read to you because I guess it's some sexy times. But basically, what starts as a distraction uh, becomes a lot more and becomes a sex scene that is essentially with Kel teaching Lila all of the different blood spells uh, in a very sexy way. So, highly recommend that you read uh, chapter four of which part? <laughs> Highly recommend that you read part nine, chapter four yourself. Um, Cause I had a lot of fun writing it. 
Okay, with that, we cut back to Alucard, uh, who spits out the latest batch of coffee, which is even worse than it was the last time, and they arrive at the floating market. Now, the plan is that Alucard, Lila, Kel, and Josta, the captain, are going to go onto the floating market together, but when they get to the edge of the market, like the doorway, Josta is refused. She's told, not today. Uh, and like basically that's Maris's prerogative. Maris uh, runs the market along with her two nephews, and one of those nephews is like Maris said no. We don't know what happened between Maris and Joss. Joss is not getting on that boat today. So Josta stomps back to her own boat, pretty pissed off. And meanwhile, Alucard, Kel, and Lila go onto the floating market. Now Holland is also on that boat. He is in chains still, but he has been given leave to like wander the boat because what good is it to keep him in the hole? But what you need to know is that Alucard, Kel, and Lila are going into that market. So they're invited in. Kel and Co. That's how I refer to them in this note. Kel and Co. Uh, so they go. They meet Maris. Maris is this incredible captain. She's going to be very important for a very long time. So I'm just going to like put a mental pin for you in this. They meet Maris and they each give up a, something, a token. Kel gives up his shilling from Grey London that he has always used. Alucard gives up some Dreams Quick, which is like an, a sleeping agent that it turns out is like a running joke between him and Maris. And Lila gives up her pocket watch. This is the one that um, that she tried to give to Baron in the very first book. I didn't talk about it in extreme detail, but it's the one that Holland brought and threw at Lila's feet when they were hiding to try and show as proof that he had killed Baron. Um, it's important to her. It's a memory for her of everything she had at Grey London, and she gives it up as a price for entering the market. Kel wants to like get to the point with Maris and be like, we're here for that inheritor, which Maris is wearing around her neck. And Alucard's like, that is not what we're gonna do. Like, you must just be terrible at bartering. We're gonna go, we're gonna like peruse this floating market and see if anything speaks to us and pretend that we're interested in other things. We're not gonna like just go straight to the thing that we actually want. We're going shopping. <laughs> So go split up and find something that you might want to buy in this market. That's how we end. So we cut back to Holland, who has been left on the other boat by himself and has a moment with Josta, who essentially is trying to decide if she wants to kill him. She basically holds Holland accountable for everything that's happening back in Red London, for everything that's happened to her family and her crew. And um, she's wondering if maybe two Antari would be enough to save the day. Again, we're like getting tiny red flags on Josta just through like the actions. Uh, and she, people, she hears people coming down the stairs and she basically is like, I won't risk it. And she walks away, but we're like, oh, Josta, you have some judgments that I'm a little concerned about. And that brings us to part 10, blood and binding. Oh my goodness. Okay. We gotta take a tiny detour to gray London Remember last time we saw Ned in Grey London, he was like, something weird is going on and it feels a little bit like some bad magic might be creeping through this wall in this world. Well, it's worse. Ned Tuttle wakes in the middle of the night to somebody knocking on the door. Remember, he lives in the tavern now, so he goes downstairs into the tavern proper, goes to the front door. It is the door itself seems to be knocking. It's creepy as fuck. Uh, there is no one outside, but he hears somebody asking to be let in. This is bad magic. This is Osterod magic. It is bad magic. It is trying to get in. It is trying to talk to Ned. And Ned, bless him, he has surrounded himself by kind of occultist trappings at this point, even though he believes in like Kel's magic. He just starts essentially, you know that moment in The Mummy 
when like the mummy shows up and the one of the guys has like seven different like religious pendants around his neck and he's just trying to find the one that like speaks to the mummy out like that's what Ned's doing. Ned's like, be gone, foul spirit. Like, you shall not pass. Like, you can't end it. Like, Ned's just like, I'm not letting you in. Ned is a good guy. Ned does not bow down to this magic. Ned is like, I gotta find some stronger spells to ward my house. Um, and then somebody else knocks and somebody just wanting to like come into the tavern. He's like, we're closed. Like, this place has been shut down until I get the bad spirits out. So Ned is holding the line over in Great London. We do not need to worry about Great London. We come back to Alucard perusing the market. So Alucard has gone off on his own. He's marveling at the market. We're, we're learning a little bit about how it works and how you can't steal shit. It's like super warded. Don't even think about stealing things. It's also a very weird collection. Super weird collection of stuff. Not all of it is forbidden. A lot of it's rare. What we're going to discover, but I don't know when, so I'm just going to tell you now, is that essentially this market is not really for selling things. Maris has a deal with the crown and essentially forbidden objects come here as kind of a vault. This is really a place where forbidden objects are taken off the market. This is a protective space. Like this is half the reason that Maris does what she does is actually working with the Maresh crown and every crown really to just like make sure that the worst magic in the world is not readily accessible. But we don't know that. So Paul, so Alucard is looking at everything and he sees something special. Um, first thing, he sees two things. Oh my goodness. Okay. The first thing he sees is a mirror. And he's trying to think of what he's going to do to prove the truth of his feelings for Rye. Because remember, Rye was like, come back after all of this and I'll listen to what you have to say. And it's like, how am I going to get him to believe it? And he sees this mirror that tells, that shows the truth. It cannot lie through this mirror, it reveals what your truths are. And he's like, I'm gonna get this mirror for Rye. And then as he's heading back to meet up with the others, something catches his eye. And remember, Alucard's eyes can see magic and they can see magic in its specific colors. So different elemental magics look different colors and Tari magic looks silver. So when he looks at Kel or Lila or Holland, he sees them in like a cloud of silver thread. And he sees a ring on a table and it's surrounded by silver threads. And he's like, huh, I'm going to take that for Kel, because this seems like it's, it's of Antari magic. Who knows? So he grabs that and he goes to find Kel. We cut to Kel and Kel is at this market and he's like, I don't even know what everything here does. Like I have like spent my life learning about magic. I have no idea what 90% of this shit is. And Alucard catches up with him and gives him the ring and Cal makes a witty jab about it being the wrong brother. And uh, Alucard's like, I don't even know what it is. It does something. And then Cal is like tugging on the ring and it becomes two rings. But neither ring is smaller. It's not like it came apart into two halves. It's like it just became two rings. And Alucard's like, oh, great. You broke it. Like now you can pay for the ring out of your own little, you know, cash because you broke that. I didn't break it. Don't let Maris think I broke it. And Kel's like, I don't think it's broken. It's just weird. They meet up with Lila and they're like, are you coming in to see Maris? And she's like, no, I want to go last. Like you guys do your shit first. I'm going to wait out here. Okay. So Alucard and Kel go in to meet with Maris to do their deals for their respective objects. And we learn what I think is one of the coolest things about Maris, which is that she doesn't do deals for money. Like money is useless to her. She has this incredible black sphere imagine like a globe but done all in like matte black 
and it has some indents on it. And this is what she uses. And it turns out what, what Maris trades in is life. Years of life. Years of your life for her. And so Alucard presents her the mirror and she's like, five. And Alucard's like, three? And they settle on four. And Kel's like, I have no idea what you guys are talking about until he finds out that we're talking about years of life. And Alucard puts his hands on this black orb and it, it, it takes life from him. This is important because we actually don't know how old Maris is. Maris might be like 300 years old. That's kind of like what I'm getting at here. I should know, I guess. I know, but you don't know. But like Maris is a lot older than she seems. Anyway, it comes to Kel's turn and Kel's like, I can't give you my life. Uh, I'm an Antari magician. I'm like super rare, but also like my life is Rai's life. And they end up bartering and he gives two years of his life for these rings because Maris refers to them as Antari binding rings. We don't know what they do. She's not going to tell us, but he, he wants them. And she kind of makes it very clear that he wants them. She's like, wow, Alucard, your eyes are really annoying because they just keep picking out the best shit on my ship. But, um, he, she then wants to talk to Kel alone. She's like, Alucard, go on. Kel and I need to have a talk. Now, remember I gave you that little sidebar where I was like, when Kel was a child, he came through the floating market and the royal family took him from there. Maris is going to make a call back to that. Um, I guess it's like a call forward because like you have not seen that story if you're reading this book for the first time. So Maris talks to Kel and is like, we've met before. You just don't remember. And Kel remembers. Kel has a little mark on the inside of his elbow that's the mark of a forgetting spell. And he knew that he forgot his life before. So he knows that this must be a part of his childhood. And Maris gives him a piece of paper that has the information about his life before he came to be a member of the royal family. And um, it's folded, of course. So it's not obvious. He's going to have to open the paper if he wants to read it. But as he's leaving, he's like, "What is? how much does this cost? And she's like, this is the only thing I will ever give you for free because it feels like settling a debt. But as he's leaving, she says, you should know, though, that like the thing about forgetting magic is that it does wear off on its own unless you really don't want it to. So some part of you does not want to remember and you should think about what that means. So dun, 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 uh, we go to Lila. Lila meets with Maris and Maris is like, huh, you have been wandering my ship, but your hands are empty. And Lila's like, cause you're wearing what I want. I want that inheritor, that thing right around your neck. And Maris is like, oh, this isn't for sale. And Lila's like, uh, I was here for the spiel that you gave me when we entered this ship and you said that it was all for sale for the right price. And Maris is like, well, you're quick. And Lila's like, yeah, I need that though. So what do you want? And Maris is like, it's so interesting. No one ever asks me what I want. And this is where Maris is like, you know, I don't do this gig because I need it. And Lila's like, why do you do it? And she's like, it's just my purpose. Let's say that. And so Lila's like, okay, fine. What do you want for that inheritor? And Maris, who's sidebar, a very good person and wanting to like help and knows that London is falling because she knows everything. Like, Maris is like, I want something I don't have. And I have a lot of things here. She's like, I don't have your eye. She's like testing to see how, like what Lila's going to do. Like, I want your broken glass eye, the one that has been cracked uh, by Oshka. She's like, I'll give you the inheritor if you give me your eye. 
And Lila gives it up gladly and immediately does not like that she did that. Like, is like, oh, I didn't realize how much I was going to miss that. Like, it's such a defense mechanism for her having it. And now she has no glass eye. But she's coming to terms with that because she got the inheritor. And Maris is like, don't worry, you can, like, wear a patch or whatever. She's like, or I, I do have something you could wear. And she pulls out a black glass eye. Like... Dun, 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 a black glass eye, which means Lila will look at herself in the mirror and for the first time see herself as she was meant to be. And she puts it in and it does feel right. And it does look right. And she's like, how much for this? And Maris says, I will do it for a favor, but I don't want to call the favor in now. And why I'm beaming and why this is so important is that is the entire reason that the fragile threads of power exists. Everyone read this series because I'm going to tell you that favor is not getting called in. And the moment that I wrote this scene, I was like, <laughs> I was like, I don't want to call in the favor in this book. I, I want to call in the favor at the very beginning of The Fragile Threads of Power and have the entire book be about that favor. So this is the favor. Maris does the deal for the black glass eye in exchange for a favor. It's going to come back. It's the whole point of Fragile Threads of Power. I'm like, yes, I'm so glad that we got here. Okay. Meanwhile, Lila's like, thanks for the eye and the inheritor. Goodbye. We cut back to Kel, uh, and Kel lets go of the piece of paper that Maris gave him without opening it. He decides that he is Kel Maresh. He is who he's been for the last however many years. He, I guess, like, I should do math. He is who he's been for the last... 18 years and that's important to him and that's who he wants to be and he's had these like moments with maxim the king and amira the queen and rye's brother that have made it very clear to him that that's his family however he came to be there so he lets go of the paper and readers everywhere go no i wanted to know that information it's too bad um and then lila joins them and lila's like hey i got this eye and kel's like holy shit your eye she's like yeah i know and then she tosses the inheritor to alucard and she's like let's get out of here and back on the ship, everyone gathers around because they're trying to figure out what the ring does that Kel did his deal for. Like, this is a silver ring, and they pull it apart, and it becomes two. They put it back together, and it becomes one. They pull it apart again, and it becomes two. They pull it apart, and it becomes three. And what they discover is that these Antari binding rings allow the three Antari magicians to share their power. Holland, Lila, Kel. It, bind, it breaks into three rings, and however many Antari put the rings on, it multiplies their power. And Lila is like, holy shit, this is how we're going to defeat Osiron. Oh my god. I wish the part stopped there. Why is there another goddamn chapter? Okay. This is the perfect place for that part to stop. It would have been such a dun-dun-dun. But it's not a dun-dun-dun. Okay. Notice I was like really sad and down in the last video because I was like, and then they die, and then they die. But like, this is a great section. This is like, we're getting to the actions. Okay. We return to Red London off of that like victory chant of like, we will prevail. And we return to Red London and Rye is riding back to the palace and he lingers on the palace steps and he turns and surveys the damage to the kingdom. And a woman starts to come up the steps and she has a message for Rai from Oseron. She is very clearly possessed. 
And she basically says, he sees you now, hollow prince, broken toy soldier, and he will cut your threads. And like, we're like, uh-oh, Oseron has like turned his little eye of Sauron on Rai. Um, and what happens is behind that woman is like an, an attack. Like all of these possessed, like people who have taken in Oseron into their minds and into their bodies, like, are approaching, led by Barris Emery, Alucard's older brother, and they begin throwing themselves against the palace wards. Like, and it's like, what is it? Unstoppable force meets an immovable object. Like, it is, but it's not going to hold forever. Rai retreats into the palace, and people are just, like, banging against the palace with their magic, and it is, like, cracking. It is already cracking. Rai rushes inside and finds the king and Tyrion making furious preparations and learns that they're ready to put the sleeping spell on the city, but it's going to require an anchor. It's going to require a person to hold the spell up, and that person is going to be Tyrion, the head priest. And essentially... Tyrion says goodbye to Rai, not knowing if they'll ever see each other again. And, and the, the palace is starting to shake and the wards are cracking and Tyrion steps into the spell and they begin to put the spell on. And it's like a question of which one's going to break first. And finally, everything goes silent. All of the fight goes out of everybody outside who was throwing themselves against the palace walls as they all collapse because the sleeping spell has fallen over the city just in time. All right, and in the last chapter of this part, we cut back to the ship uh, where Kel and Lila have been brainstorming how they're gonna use the ring to defeat Oseron, and Holland's like, give it to me. And they're like, uh, no. <laughs> no offense, I know you have like saved her life and you've like tried to help, but like you're still Holland and I don't know if we can trust you. And what we discover is that the original ring, you know, it breaks into multiple pieces, but the first part is the anchor. It's kind of the, the person, whoever's wearing the anchor, they can't take that ring off until the other two rings come off. So like whoever is in that position is kind of holding the spell together and binding it, but it means that they can't really sever themselves. It puts them in a slightly subordinate position. And Holland's like, I will be the anchor. And Holland's like, Lila's like, I still don't trust you. And Holland's like, you don't have to trust me, but like it's going to take all three of us to do this. And I am willing to put myself in this position. Holland's like, I'm willing to be the anchor of this spell. And as long as we're connected, like you'll have access to my power. And Lila's like, yeah, but you'll also have access to our power. And Holland's like, okay, but like one Antari magician was not enough to lure Oseron into taking our body. Like we need him to step into one of us and he's not going to do it with, we're like, unless all of us combine our magic, it's going to be too enticing to him. We have to work together in this. You're going to have to trust me. And Lila's like, I, I don't want to do this. But in the interest of everything, the three of them agree that they're going to work together. And Lila Bard puts on the ring. And that is how we end part 10. Uh, not to be very ominous that part 11 is called Death at Sea. Uh, but that is for next week. Next week is the end of the read-along. We are going to finish Conjuring of Light. There's so much still to come. I hope you're enjoying this as much as I am. What a ride. Uh, yeah, we gotta get to the end. 